Welcome to the Gottesdienst crowd, where we foster confessional integrity, liturgical preservation, and preaching that doesn't stink. We believe that the historic liturgy of the divine service is more than mere cobwebs of antiquity, but it is a true treasure of the Church to be dusted off and brought down from her attic to be enjoyed. So let's get dusting. Welcome back to the Gottesdienst crowd. This is Jason Broughton. Today we have back with us Carl Fabricius. Welcome back, Carl. Always great to be here with you, Jason. Uh, it's always good to uh, to hear your your uh, sarcasm come over the internet. So that's good too. <laughs> <laughs> Me yeah. sarcastic? Yeah. It uh, you know it just keeps things real. So that's good. <laughs> Uh, we're looking at today, First Kings chapters eight and nine, uh, where we see on display, on full display, Solomon's wisdom and his uh, ability to kind of recapitulate um, most of uh, the Pentateuch, uh, and we see how important it is, uh, not only for them but also then for us that. Old dictum, repetitio es mater studiorum, that the mother of all learning is repetition. And this is what he institutes in and, and rehearses in these verses. And we'll see how it carries over into our Lord's own ministry and teaching. So, why don't you walk us through where do we start? Well, you've got the previous chapter is just all the furnishings and everything are ready. You've got the stuff that David has had dedicated already, and it's time to bring everything into the temple of the Lord that is finally completed. And so he brings all Israel together, and they come up to Jerusalem, and the first thing they have to do, of course, is move the ark in the uh, into the new temple. So they mm-hmm. have to get the ark, they get it, and fascinating that it seems now they don't do the details of every step of the way that we've heard before but you have this whole thing that the priests are bringing the ark of the covenant and uh, to put it in its place under the wings of the cherubim and along the way the whole congregation is offering sacrifices sheep oxen there's blood everywhere so that the, the blood is so important as sort of the center of what's going to go on at the temple. I mean, it is going to be, in a sense, a slaughterhouse. It'll smell like uh, downtown Milwaukee used to smell when they had tanneries and everything down there. They've all gone away now, but you could just smell the atmosphere and death and, you know, the animals around it. And here you've got the blood along the way. Here you've got this brand new temple, and yet the blood is the center of the activity because ultimately... It is going to be about atonement, and it's going to be a place of the forgiveness of sins. And you're going to come back to this, too. It's like the event is framed in this, because it, you go and uh, jump ahead to the end of the chapter 8, and Solomon offers 22,000 bulls and 120,000 sheep, and that's just Solomon, mm-hmm. because the people are also offering the sacrifices. So the center of of the need for the atoning sacrifice, here it is. And of course, the name is going to be on this place. Mm-hmm. And so you have the Lord who 
uh, said to Solomon, he will dwell in the dark cloud. Well, immediately you have to think of the Exodus and how you had the cloud, you know, pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. You also have uh, the account of, uh, you know, thinking ahead to the New Testament, the cloud at the uh, transfiguration. You've got clouds so important in terms of related to these various events. Uh, a cloud covers Mount Sinai, uh, mm-hmm. a dark cloud, and the, the giving of the law. So all this imagery setting you up to ask the question about the Lord and where he dwells. Um, already Moses brings this up in Deuteronomy about the Lord being near them and the idea of where is he going to dwell. Um, but here the house is built, and it's a place for him to dwell in forever. But even there, you've got, of course, there's going to be language that it's pointing to the incarnation here because the Lord is going to dwell mm-hmm. and he's going to dwell in the place forever, but he's going to dwell in the flesh of men. Mm-hmm. You know, the word's going to become flesh. And there is the dwelling point is even in the ascension, you will have still the flesh mm-hmm. and the center of the whole thing being the incarnation. And so the king here, Solomon, is the fleshly representative of all of that. And so it's strange. It says the king blesses the people. But, you know, you think of a blessing as being sort of um, often in our world that you're saying something good about somebody or something good's going to happen to somebody. This blessing is more like, well, you even see it in terms of the ironic benediction, but this whole, it's blessed be the Lord God of Israel. So you don't go right away talking about the people. You're talking about the God who is behind everything and the center of all of this, Mm -hmm. because the one who created the heavens and the earth, he spoke with his mouth to my father, David. And this speaking is so speaking words, promises, where it's words and hearing words. This just is sprinkled throughout what Solomon's going to say here. Mm -hmm. And it reminds me of John's gospel a lot. You get this kind of language in John. If you continue in my word, you are my disciples indeed. Uh, You get that whole John 14 through 16, where you have a lot of language about hearing, keeping those words, uh, the vine and the branches remaining, you know, in him. Mm-hmm. It's all of that kind of language that I think the, the the John language goes back to the Solomon language. Of course, Solomon is a guy with two names. On the one hand, his name is Peace. On the other hand, he's Jedediah, loved by the Lord. And uh, both of those have a lot to say to us in terms of the ultimate son of David, the one who is the beloved one who will be offered up and the one who indeed is going to finish all the work. So I'm jumping ahead a little bit and getting the whole context, but you kind of have to have that whole New Testament background as you're thinking about this blessing he's given. He spoke with his mouth to my father, David. He's also going to say later, he spoke to Moses and spoke through Moses, his servant, so that Moses and David figure prominently in this whole um Chapter 8 and 9, this beginning of a temple, he's going to set out the history um, that, in fact, God had said that 
through David that his, uh, he had not had his own place. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it's interesting how that gets quoted here uh, because we know that what God says to David through Nathan the prophet is, you know, you don't really need to build a house for me because I don't really need that. All the other gods around them have houses, but the God of Israel has been content with what he established, that is, the place that was carried from place to place, a place important in terms even of the uh, John again and the idea of the tabernacle, or looking at Second Corinthians 5 and the tent language there, uh, when you have the tent of the body and all that language of the decaying. Um, along the way, these things have to sort of be feeding that New Testament, Old Testament, bouncing back and forth as you read the text. So you hear the words, after all, hearing's key here in this particular section. You hear the words and they bounce around in your head and you are almost forced by them to think of other New Testament sections Mm -hmm. where this is coming up. Um, I chose David to be over my people, he says. And there's the Old Testament story of Samuel coming to uh, choose him. But even in David, of course, we know that there wasn't the one who would build the temple, um, even though he wanted to. So the Lord says, no, uh, you will not do do the building of a temple for my name. Um, It's fine that it was in your heart, but ultimately it will be your son who comes from your body. I love that fact that it says, the son that comes from your body. You know, it's very important to be thinking in terms of the son from the body, uh, because ultimately you have Christ coming forth. Um, He shall build the temple for my name. Christ builds the ultimate temple. Now, yes, Solomon has built this temple. It's there. And yet, even in the words that he prays here, there's going to be sort of a declaration that there's more to come. So the Lord kept his word. He fulfilled what he spoke. This is what God does. Mm -hmm. He keeps the words he speaks. And we need to be the ones who hold fast to them, who hear them. Our problem is we want to listen to everything else. I mean, that let's face it, Solomon's problem was that. By the time you get four chapters ahead, isn't it four chapters? Or is maybe three, whatever. Uh, you get to that section where you hear of how he's not only built this temple, but he's listened to the words of his wife, sort of like Genesis 3, and he's built temples for all these different wives he has so that you've got all their gods having temples and a place for the name of their god. But ultimately, there's only one god whose name saves, the name associated with the blood sacrifices, the one who, in fact, is going to send his own son to take our place. And so the um, time comes and God's words are fulfilled. I have built a temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. And there I have made a place for the ark. Now, the ark is placed in there. I always love this part, and I wanted to wait until now to mention this, because you, all you see are the posts, I should say the sticks, the, the poles, excuse me, sticking out. Nothing else is seen of the ark because it's all covered over there. And those poles, of course, are made of wood. 
mm-hmm. covered in gold, and yet the wood itself, uh, historically, and I didn't come up with this, I've in the early church, it's always mentioned that you should think of the image of the cross and the fact that there are four of those sticking out. I mean, you see two ends and two ends, right? So that's the four corners of the earth and the fact that ultimately Christ comes and upon the cross, you have him gathering everything in the real mercy seat of God. Now, inside that ark, there's only one thing in the Ark of the Covenant here, and that's two tables of stone. Now, remember before this, there had been more, hadn't there? Yeah. I mean, you had Aaron's budding rod. You had the manna. You had all this. But now all it is is that and a reminder ultimately that you've got all the blood, you've got the mercy seat, you've got the poles, and in there you have the law, the law that indeed is holy and true, and yet it also accuses it also is what they need to strive for for love but ultimately it needs to be the mercy seat of god that is the key place and will be the center of the activities as it was before in the um, in the uh, tent of meeting or whatever mm-hmm. um i always call it the tabernacle but um the the um it was always the center of the activity there too because mm-hmm. that's where the name sits. The name is there. It's there in that holy mercy seat where the presence of God and his desire to save is revealed for all the nations of the earth. So Solomon then um, has had this little introduction, gone through that part, and then he stands in the presence of the assembly and he begins to pray. And Right away, he says, there is no God in heaven above or on earth below like you. Now, why is that so? Well, you always have to have that defined. And what really makes God God is he keeps his covenant. Now, the gods of the earth, well, even in the account of Jephthah, remember, we had that section where he says, okay, if this land is really yours and you have a God, your God should give it to you because our God gave us this land. And so it has to go back to the defining exactly what you mean. It's he keeps his covenant of and his mercy with his servants um, who walk before you with all your, their hearts, he says. Well, as we know, the history of Israel is a mess and the history of the New Testament church is a mess. Because there's that desire to walk with the whole heart, and yet it is not always so. And so what you have said to your servant David now, that's translated usually as promised, I just want to do, do it kind of literally here and say, what you have, you have kept what you said you'd do for, my, for David, my father. You have spoken words with your mouth. You have fulfilled it with your hand. So he's backed up everything he did with his actions. And so the Lord God of Israel, now he says, keep. He just keeps coming back in these initial um, phrases of the prayer to keeping. God keeps his word. And now he says, I want you to keep doing that for us. Keep. Hold fast. Um, Sort of that, uh, uh, maybe sort of like the New Testament where you have the um, um, whole Matthew 28, 19, and um, teaching them everything I have commanded you. Mm-hmm. That's 
point on here. Everything I've said to you needs to be handed down, and you need to hold fast to them uh, at all times. And so, first of all, he says, you promised a man on the throne. You spoke that to my father, David. Keep that. I hold you to your words. I'm reminded of Moses when he's on the mountain, and God says to him, you know, the people have gone wild. I'll destroy them, and I'll start over with you, Moses. And Moses immediately says, no, keep your word. Don't let the nation say this is a God who is unfaithful to what he promised. He led them out and just killed them out here. No, you promised that you would be with these people. You said your word, and he holds God to his word. Now, this is what we really need to do. It's sort of like the other day in prayer, we talked about, well, Jesus praying, thy will be done. Just hold God to his word. He knows that the will of the Father is that men be saved by the atoning sacrifice. And he says, your will be done. And so with us too, we need to pray this. It's kind of hard at times because we like our will, <laughs> our will. It's, this is what's good about some of those hills, um, some of those hymns about doing the will of God in the uh, hymnal, yeah. those old Lutheran hymns, you know, where we just sing that it's the will of God is best. and We'll do that and stick with that will of God, even if it means I have to suffer, I have to die, I have to go through plagues, I have to go through pestilence, I have to, it doesn't matter because the will of God is always good. And here he's saying, I'm going to hold you to what you said. And, O oh God of Israel, let your word come true, which you have spoken to your servant David, my father. Always hold God's word. I, you know, this is part of even Luther's explanations of the Lord's Prayer. You get that flavor of holding God to his word. This is why for Luther and for others in the history of the church, uh, praying the Lord's Prayer is something we shouldn't grow tired of because after all, the Lord's the one who taught us to pray this way and we should simply be content to do that. Mm -hmm. Do we always think it through perfectly? Do we always have it... No, but what we're doing is saying, here are the words you give us, Lord. We're going to hold you to it. Mm -hmm. And this is a good thing to do in faith, to cling to God's words and be content with those things. Yeah. Even though some would argue, well, the Lord's prayer is just too simple. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. come on, is that really heartfelt? Jesus gives us the words. Right. Rejoice. Be glad in them. Um, so before you, you the before you continue on, I just wanted to kind of track back a little bit, you know, you're talking about the cloud um, and he would, you know, dwell in the cloud. It talks about how he dwells in thick darkness. Um, is that a reference to the cloud or is that a reference to the fact that his word and thus his name is uh, inscribed on these tablets covered up? Is it that, because of his name, he's dwelling in a in the land that is covered with darkness, and his word is a great light. Or does it encompass kind of all of those things? I think you can include a lot of that. Um, the thick darkness, I think, in many cases, just the fact that we don't get God at all. Mm. You now we want to make him in our image, and so when men try to make rather than being content with just hearing the words about him, 
we want to figure them out. You know, all the people want to say, why do bad things happen to good people? Yeah. Why does this go on? Right. We always want to sort of try to figure it out rather than being content with what God actually reveals. Right. You know, it's when we go after the thick darkness, we can get ourselves in some big trouble. It's be content with where he's revealed. And so verse 27 kind of ties in. We're finally going to sort of build on that God dwelling and thick because he says, will God indeed dwell on the earth? And the answer to that is yes, much like, you know, um, what is it in uh, Genesis? I wanted to make reference to chapter three where the fall and the sin comes. Mm-hmm. Oh, and God says, where are you? Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. he knows precisely that he wants sort of that humor thing. But here, will God indeed dwell on earth? Well, yes, he's going to. That's what he promised because you get to Genesis 3.15 and you have the whole promise of the one who will be born of a woman. So the question is not just a question. It's really sort of almost a statement. Behold, heaven and the heavens of heavens cannot contain you, how much less this temple which I have built. So on the one hand, he's really led into the incarnation. On the other hand, he's sort of waffling, and yet he's saying, look, you promised to be at the temple. Be there. Much like you could go back to Genesis 3.15 and the promise already to be born of a virgin and sort of hold him to that. Regard the prayer of your servant and his supplication, O Lord my God. Listen to the cry and the mm-hmm. prayer which your servant is praying before you today. You know, the cry here, I like this word because particularly in Isaiah, the word for cry here is used lots of times crying out for redemption, crying out as the rams- ransomed of God, the ransomed who are led into the gates of the city. So it's connected and some of the references to in the Psalms are much in the same vein, so that it gives the word a sort of color. He's standing in the house of God, and he's crying out like one of his redeemed, like one of the ransomed, crying out to be heard. And God hears those who cry out to him. You know, even the, well, the John 14 through 16 stuff again, you get that whole imagery of the prayer being heard. Uh, by the Father in heaven. And we need to always kind of realize that in the Old Testament, there was that thought in a certain sense. But now you turn to Christ, the one who becomes the fulfillment of the temple in all things. Um, and then, So to, to continue on ahead. that in terms of the building a house for his name, the, uh, we know that God's name is on the tablets, um, so does he already have a house because of the ark or is it, is it like, are there a bunch of like, is there a house within a house within a house? And it just kind of builds out that, that you have, uh, I know I, I'm pretty sure some commentators have talked about how, you know, the, the temple and its precursor, the tabernacle are, are based on like the construction of the world in terms of the spaces that you have the, you know, the inner space, the earth, and then the air, and then the, the, the heavens. Um, 
and then the the construction of the tabernacle and temple you have the outer court the holy place the most holy place how, how does that all then carry over to then the incarnation where you get a new house for his name namely in the the very flesh and blood of jesus well to go just to that hebrews language those are only shadows in the old testament mm. you get the real fleshly thing when christ is there in the flesh doing everything that's done in the temple in his own body even sacrificing himself being the sacrifice everything within the temple is tied up in him ultimately um you could get really medieval and go through all the things that are in the uh tabernacle first and then in the temple and you know clearly for the medievals that language you were using about uh, you know the sort of an imagery of the world and creation around us mm. was very much a thought when they were looking at things like this and uh, but ultimately everything then they would go through each of the things and explain the connection to Jesus because it ultimately ties into his work that is done I mean, you have the place of the washings, the lavabo, and of course the washings which were done in terms of baptism ultimately, but even they were tied into certain things with, uh, within the liturgy that were being done. So all of these things center in Christ ultimately because these are all the shadows pointing toward the greatest reality. Yeah. And so when... John 2, where he says, you know, destroy this temple and I will build it again in three days. Um, that's sort of the ultimate key. But even in the language of this prayer, as we go further along, you're going to have language about the temple being destroyed, mm -hmm. which goes back to Deuteronomy, but is also here Solomon is preaching, really. I mean, he starts with all this stuff about who God is, the name being there, and God's promise to hear. I mean, that's very important for when they uh, think of Daniel. They're in captivity. Daniel, of course, is opening his windows facing Jerusalem and praying when he's not supposed to be praying to the God who has promised to hear. The only reason he'd do something like that is because he knows the promise. God gave him that word. He's going to do it even though it means he's, of course, endangering his own life because the words of Nebuchadnezzar have threatened him. Mm -hmm. But the word of the Lord is the life-giving word, and so he prays toward Jerusalem. And you see that language in the other prophets as well. Um, so he's going to hear. Yeah, The cry goes up from the redeemed, and he hears. Hear in heaven your dwelling place. And then, I just love it. It's just so simple. He sort of built, 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 and then the end of verse 30, and when you hear, forgive. Because that's what the temple's about. That's ultimately but what the name is about. The name of God is there to save us. And ultimately, that word forgiveness is going to be repeated again and again within this prayer, because the mm -hmm. house of God must be about that. All the other gods of all the other nations require this, that, and the other thing, not this God. And so 
he starts going through a series of things now in which he says, if anyone sins against his neighbor and is forced to take an oath and comes and takes an oath before your altar in this temple. Now, remember, there's that whole, isn't it Matthew 6 where you get the discussion of oaths before the altar? Mm-hmm. And then you get it again in Matthew, uh, I can't think later in that. Is it Matthew 24? No, maybe 23, where the language of being an oath. Oh. And uh, right away, the very first one here is that. Now, I should have written this down yesterday when I was thinking about it, but, well, it's not essential to discussion. But um, So you begin with that, and then here in heaven, an act and judge your servants. So it's much like we talked about with Jephthah. If you're going to be judged, you want mm-hmm. God to be the judge. You want to put your the judgment in his court, or when we talked about David and the question of the plagues after the counting, it's always best to turn to the one that you want judging your servants. Condemn the wicked and bring his way on his head. Mm-hmm. Then comes justifying the righteous by giving him according to his righteousness, which can only be understood in terms of Genesis. Abraham was, you know, um, it was credited to him for righteousness because of faith, and the language has been there. David, it wasn't his actions, it was David's faith. Solomon, it's got to be about his faith too, that his righteousness comes by faith. Justify the righteous. Reveal him as being the one who is faithful. David is revealed as being faithful. Um, Solomon, Jephthah, well, Jephthah especially, because he's declared in the New Testament to be one of the faithful. So you've God again and again is the one who judges, who declares one righteous uh, because of their faith. So when your people of Israel are defeated, comes the next section. Mm-hmm. Is there sinned against? Is there a yes. sense? You know, you've got it was in the heart of David to build this, and then the Lord said it was that David did well to keep it in his heart. Um, is there a sense in which that's? kind of where this is culminating in that the Lord's name is going to dwell in the heart of man again, namely the person of Jesus Christ, that he well, is the and- son of David who is uh, um, a man of, after God's own heart, indeed has God's own heart. And now you're hitting at something that is right at the heart of this. I'm going to jump ahead because I think it's important we do at this point. Um when you go to uh, verse, oh, verses 37 through roughly 41, 40, you have this whole list when there's famine, pestilence, blight, mildew, right. locusts, grasshoppers. And notice the phrase then that comes um, uh, in verse 38, when each one knows the plague of his own heart. Mm-hmm. Uh, now that's a plague, it's a striking, it, points to the fact that the uh, heart itself is really the issue here. Because after all, it's been the sins of the people, them putting their hearts following after other gods, that again and again caused these judgments to come upon them. So when it boils down to when they see the plague of his own heart, then cry out. And he says, here in heaven. So he comes back to God. You promised you'd hear them when they repent here in heaven, and forgive, and act. And so he 
I think that's the heart of all of this, really. Mm -hmm. It comes sort of in the middle of the section, but it really does, out of the heart, proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, the whole thing. It's really there. Now, you also need to remember Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes has another name. That would be? Jedediah. No, he's the preacher. Oh, the preacher. Yeah. Yeah, because he writes, I know, I jumped all of a sudden on you. Good Lord. <laughs> so, you so here he is. Me. You put me on the spot. Do you remember uh, I know, I game? shouldn't do it. <laughs> I shouldn't do that. I repent. It just, it, just, it just shows how well I'm listening. I should have picked up on Ecclesiastes, but I yeah. heard, what's his other name? I'm like, Jedediah, we already talked about that. <laughs> well, I know. It's, I had kind of led you into that. So, um, But it's also that they fear you and live in the land which you gave to our fathers. Back to that. So the heart is the problem all along because their hearts are not hearing what is most important. Now, if you get to mm-hmm. the very... Oh, well, and this, this is what back? Solomon asks to begin, doesn't he? When he... It's usually translated as wisdom, but it's a hearing heart. It's an, an understanding heart. Yes. Yes. And that comes up again in, oh, yes, verse 61, right at the end of the section. Again, it's, let your heart, therefore, be loyal to the Lord our God, to walk in his statutes and keep his commandments as at this day. So here you're all rejoicing this day. We're dedicating the new temple. You're hearing the words of the Lord uh, recited to you. There are words that go, you know, tie in well with the words of Moses, and I haven't even dealt with that. But if you go back to Deuteronomy 28 through about 32, you get this whole section where the words of the law have been written down, and he instructs them to repeat them, but you get the blessings and the curses, remember? And already in the blessings and curses, you have really a structure for what Solomon is praying here. Mm -hmm. He's going through many of the same things that Moses has indicated will happen in the blessings and curses section. And Mm -hmm. even so far as uh, when you get to verse, uh, well, 46, when they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin. Um, That's sort of a first John kind of tie in too. You become angry with them, deliver them to the enemy and they take them captive to the land of the enemy far and near. Now Moses had already said that was going to happen. Solomon repeats it. Now, does he see it on the horizon right now? I mean, things are going well, right? The kingdom's expanded. You're going to have the uh, coming of the queen of Sheba. There's all this stuff. And yet, because he's been taught, whoever catechized him, you know, did David do it? Did Bathsheba do it? Was it a priest? You know, you're just not sure because you're never told who catechized him. But he knows this stuff. He knows what Moses had talked about, and he's really going through the whole sequence now as the name is placed on this building, that now they look to this place, remembering the God who brought them out of Egypt, the God who gave his covenant, the God who was merciful to them. Remember all these things, and remember he's warned you that you can be carried off into captivity. Mm -hmm. He says, even when that happens, hear them. And so we know that you also have a reference to foreigners in this prayer, which I find fascinating as well. Mm-hmm. When foreigners look to this place, well, you've got Cyrus. You've got these 
account, you know, Nebuchadnezzar and how he, you know, repents. And you have him also, of course, not repenting. You have the wild man for a while and then being restored. You've got these interactions with foreigners. Well, and a foreigner um, like uh, Naaman comes, of course, as well. So confused foreigner, needed to be instructed, and yet he came, didn't he? Mm -hmm. So again and again, the foreigners are there, and already Solomon is praying for that. Now, that works well with the fact that when the son of David, the beloved son of David comes, he, of course, wants all nations to be taught about him. So they look to him as the name, the name that saves, and the one who's the new temple, the one who redeems, the one who brings back the ransom to, of his people from all the nations of the earth. Uh, so they hear of the great name and your strong hand and your outstretched arm. Didn't just happen in those days. It happened again and again in the Old Testament, but ultimately it happens in the New Testament and in the church as the word goes out to the nations of the earth so that the inclusion comes with the preaching of the one who comes in the flesh. So building upon all that heart language that comes up time and time again, when we get to the days of Isaiah, when he's talking about, I think in Isaiah 29, that, you know, you people draw close to me with your lips and uh, worship me with these man-made rules, uh, but they are their hearts are far from me. Uh, it seems that they've forgotten the whole point of the edifice itself. Right, the, the edifice was meant to be a a means by which the hearts could draw close, that the hearts could uh, keep and be kept by the Lord and His Word. Um, and then you get this in the New Testament too. You know, the cleansing of the temple. You know, you've made my father's house a den of robbers and it's meant to be a house of prayer uh it's like it's meant to be a place for hearts that are made clean by the 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 outcry of the prayer so that he will hear and forgive not as a cover for sin um how, how do we then bring this into our own practice so that we you know we don't set aside the outward things but that they're actually used for the proper purpose. Well, and that's the thing. They have to be used for the proper purpose, and the words are at the heart of it. And, of course, if anything should teach us the importance of gathering as a congregation, as they were doing that day, remember, this is the assemblage of the people who come together to hear these words as they're being really taught by their king, being taught by Solomon, So we too need to gather around as a congregation, around the word that is preached, and yes, in a liturgical lifestyle, an orderly one. I mean, this is a very very orderly presentation. You had the, let's do the sacrifices and enter. We'll put the, you know, put the Ark of the Covenant where it belongs. We'll have these prayers that recount the history of Israel and how God has been faithful, and we'll ask him to continue to hear us all the time, and then we'll offer more sacrifices. Well, now we don't need to offer the sacrifices. We need to have our hearts cleansed. Creating me a clean heart is in the liturgy, because there, of course, 
we are going, and I think it's important too, the Isaiah 6 words, of course, that we have in the Sanctus, because you're crying out, holy, 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 and remember it's there that you have the woe, I'm unclean lips, and then you have the the topic of the people. Already Mm. in the sending of Isaiah, it's the keep on hearing but do not understand, keep on seeing but do not perceive. The language that you see at the end of the book of Acts, that you see Jesus himself making reference to, um, that it is the fact that really church is to be where we gather, hear his word, receive his body and blood for the forgiveness of sins. Notice here, your son gave us this. He gave us the words. He said, this is my body. This is my blood given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Hear those words and give us this. We pray the Our Father as part of that liturgy. You know, we're crying out for the forgiveness. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who try. The heart of the life of the church is in the giving of forgiveness of sins. There's confession and absolution, uh, private confession and absolution, the place where you deal with the heart that needs to be dealt with. So the cleansing of God's people is at the center. It's a very sacramental lifestyle. I mean, let's face it, that's what the temple was in a certain sense. Mm -hmm. It was a sacramental place where God put his name and said, I promise that where these offerings are given from the heart, I indeed redeem my people. He gave them the things he said, trust in this way until, of course, the ultimate sacrifice is given. So the sacrifice has been made. We go to church and we say, Lord, Father, hear these things. Father, forgive our sins for the sake of your son. Give us what he promised us, given and shed for the forgiveness of sins. Give us what he promised us, that those who are baptized, let the little children come to me. Give us those things that you promised to us. And so the hearing of the scriptures is so important that they are just read, you know, and as a side issue, here's what people need to realize. The hearing, when those scriptures are read, that's really a sermon too. Those are the words being preached to us that came mm-hmm. sermons of the prophets before, sermons of the uh, New Testament writers, sermons of Jesus himself being delivered to us so that we uh, would become his holy people. Yes, we need to hear those words, take them to heart and learn them, you know, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest that old colic. Mm-hmm. that. These things shape our hearts, not, and they shape our hearts because God promises he will shape our hearts through them. Mm-hmm. It's not that he says, you know, you need to be enthusiastic about this and that and do this and that, and then I'll shape your hearts. He just says, hear my words. And so this emphasis of Solomon that, look, you've given us the words, we need to hear them, and now here are words that we speak to you. Well, this is what goes on in the liturgy. We have the dialogue back and forth. We have crying out to God, crying out as ransomed, as is redeemed for his mercy, and we hear his words of forgiveness to us, culminating really in two things, like Leah says, the two mountains, the sermon and then the sacrament. You go up both mountains and you receive what was given to us really at the ultimately the one mountain, uh, the mountain where Christ is to be sacrificed. Here you are at Zion um, in the Old Testament where they're erecting 
where this temple has been erected and where all the sacrifices will go on. But ultimately, there is the one place where the sacrifice was made and it is finished, the atoning sacrifice of Christ. And the church's life is around that because there he comes, because he promised to come there. Hmm. Um, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Notice the name is there. And the name is put upon his baptized. You're baptized into the name. The name is there associated with the Lord's Supper as well. The name is always tied in, and the name gives to us, his people, what we need. So we have to really live by faith, hearing the words, trusting he never lies to us. He always tells us the truth. That's what Solomon is basically saying here, even when he talks about the fact that, oh, yeah, when the time comes that they rebel and they have to be carried up into captivity, it's still You've been true. You warned us. You already told us that in the days of Moses, that this can happen. And we simply haven't learned. We've gone down mm-hmm. that road and not paid it, you know, the falling apart of anything. So the fact that he um, gets to the second appearance to Solomon, and um, it concludes with that whole language about they're going to pass by this house and say, that was the exalted house. But now they're going to hiss and say, why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? And there's only one answer they can give, because they forsook the Lord their God who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and have embraced other gods. Well, you can say that about the church at Ephesus. You can say that about the church in many places where the word has disappeared over the years. It's dried up just like the Isaiah the prophet warned. There's the time of uh, the rain, and then it's withdrawn. And again and again, we see this in the history of the church, just like in the Old Testament, when people turn away from the things that matter, from hearing the words of God, from the sacramental life of baptism and the Lord's Supper, they totally unplug everything and the church falls apart because you can't keep the church something that's centered in men and personalities of men and all that. It has to be about the ongoing proclamation of the word and the sacramental life of that congregation. And the liturgy forces you to do that. And good hymns force you to do that. They keep you in bounds. You know, we like to play without borders, so to speak, mm-hmm. and just go out there, go over we, wherever we want to go as if we're free to do everything. No, we need to be confined. That's what we need. I mean, what is the law about? The Ten Commandments give us a... You know, they restrict us, don't they? But at the same time, they show us the way of real love mm-hmm. so that they're always important. We yeah. need the commandments. They need to be taught. They need to be handed down. The statutes need to be handed down. We need to hand down the Lord's Supper to the generation after us and the way of baptizing and the fact that their pastors need to be faithful to the words. As Lutherans, of course, the Lutheran confessions, stressing that those things are good things to hand down. But ultimately, that sacramental life at the church, centering in preaching and baptism and confession and absolution and the Lord's Supper needs to be the key. So okay. I rambled a lot there. No, you're fine. <laughs> uh, so when should we be bringing this, you know, this whole uh, account to bear in our own preaching? 
uh, I mean, just in terms of, are there occasions throughout the year that we should be reminding the people about uh, what is being um, uh, conveyed here? Uh, is it during Easter when you get basically John 12 through 16? Is it uh, during the cleansing of the temple narratives? I think Trinity 10 uh, is the Luke version. Um are there other opportunities where we need to remind the people about why these things were instituted, uh, what the heart of the matter is, is namely the heart, but that doesn't exclude external things. In fact, um, it can be the very, uh, as you said, the very curbs upon our wayward heart to help us remain true. Where else should we bring this in? Well, it's, always an end of church here thing. I mean, mm. you get that language about really you get into the end of church here talk and you get, you know, language in Matthew 24, 25 um, that really needs to be repeated to people. We need to learn the lesson of Israel. You know, that thing I just talked about, the, it's destroyed. There is no temple now. You know, it's gone. All the sacrificial system is gone. It's all a thing of the past. And it was because they turned away from his words. They rejected his son. They did not keep his commandments. Um, even the basic ones that Moses warns about early, that, that they had no, they did not honor their parents. That comes up, of course, in Matthew uh, as well, where you have the language about how the Pharisees have figured out how to get around those kinds of things with honoring their parents. Um, so it fits in well there. It fits in well during Lent. I was thinking in terms of this being, uh, some of this works well with just themes of repentance on Ash Wednesday even, mm -hmm. because really it is again and again, he's going, okay, we need to be, we need to hear the words. God repeats that. So does Solomon here in this text, that we need to hear the words and cling fast to them. And then he goes on um, to say about forgiveness. So we have sinned, we've done wrong, we've committed wickedness, they're supposed to say at one point. And uh, that's true of us too. So mm -hmm. it it's like many of these Old Testament things. You have to learn to use them instead of stories about your Uncle Joshua. We don't <laughs> care about your Uncle Joshua. I don't want to hear about your little kid doing something at home and you had to slap him or something. I don't want that story. I want stories that are rooted in things that Solomon brings up that he learned because somebody catechized him about Moses, and we need to hand these things down as well. You don't have to go through everything he mentions here. If you just mentioned the plagues and the famines, for example, or ultimately the plague of his own heart, that language, yeah. um, these are the things that are at the heart of it all throughout the church here. And when you bring it in, it's kind of, you know, too often we don't bring these things in. I, I don't know that I ever heard anybody besides me mention the prayer of Solomon in the temple. I did use it a couple times, but I mean, most people just kind of, eh. <laughs> it's there, it's a historical thing, and we'll just, eh. But they should know it. Pastors mm -hmm. should know these things because they really are good to use and say things really haven't changed. Yes, Christ has come in the flesh, but guess what? You've got all this stuff was going on in the Old Testament, and it gets repeated. 
And mm-hmm. there's nothing new under the sun. Another Solomon quote that I use too much, I know, but <laughs> just uh, it's it is just so apropos. There really is nothing new under the sun. It keeps getting repeated. Yeah. And for all Solomon's sins, here's another thing. Like Jephthah, you know, Solomon gets picked on because of all the false gods that got brought into. Well, we don't want to get so carried away that we forget Solomon was really a man of faith too. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's some we we have problems holding those two things side by side sometimes, and yet look at our life. We are, I mean, Lutherans love to say it, saints and sinners, right? Right. We are those, and like Solomon before us, and like all those before us, and we can only live by the God who is faithful to his covenant and his mercy, to go back to the phrase that Solomon started all this with. That's the one we need to listen to. And he's the one we know we can rely on. So That's great, Carl. Thanks so much um, for taking us through this. Uh, I often use this, um, these two chapters in talking about, you know, what's in a name when we're going through baptism and catechesis or other kind of catechetical instruction and what that indicates. Um, but as you've noted, this is this is the heart of the matter, right? Um, so thanks for thanks for taking taking us through it and and outlining all the intricacies and all the different ways that we can draw on the Old Testament to highlight and elucidate the new. So well done. It was, it was well of you to keep that in your heart. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, thank you, Jason. All right. Uh, look forward to the next topic, uh, and uh, uh, we'll catch you then. All right. 